got a ton of ground to cover this morning. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that we started a new series called Restoration in the Church, in which we're asking, what does it look like uh, for the church in the Western world to be restored? Uh, Not just to some pre-COVID state, that's actually not the goal at all, but rather we're asking what would it look like for the dwindling church across the Western world to become the church that God intends and desires? Uh, What would it look like for her to uh, become the church of the New Testament? Vibrant and flourishing, even in the midst of cultural pressure and opposition. Uh, poised to usher in the next revival or renewal that our Western culture needs so badly? Uh, That's the question that we'll be exploring in the weeks and months ahead. Picking up this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, uh, Paul writes this. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Before we continue, uh, let's pray. Jesus, we turn our hearts, our minds, our lives to you now, and we just say as simply as we can that you are our ultimate authority, Lord. Um, and, and there's surely the sense that uh, all power and authority on earth has been given to you, but there's also the sense in which we, uh, as, as humans, need to choose to come under your authority, uh, to, to proclaim that you are king, to say, actually, Jesus, you get uh, the first word and the last word. And, and as I was studying for the teaching this week, it came across the statistic that uh, only 2% of people in my generation have a biblical, a truly biblical worldview. Lord, would you come uh, and search our hearts this morning? May we be uh, among those 2% who are surrendered to you, who are surrendered to what you say is true, uh, and may that 2% grow and spread uh, in the months and years and even decades that lie out front. And despite everything that the culture Uh, claims and predicts, Lord, would you uh, move in power, and as we'll see this morning, would your um, truth, would your word go out as part of the revival and the renewal that our culture needs so badly. We are yielded to you in this place, Lord. Come and search our hearts uh, and transform us to look more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. As our skeptical culture closes in and the church begins to erode and collapse across the Western world, uh, what's left of the church is forced to ask some really tough questions. Um, Who are we as the church, as followers of Jesus? Uh, What are we doing? 
what is the church actually supposed to be and supposed to be about? And within those big questions uh, that we're forced to wrestle with, every community and in fact every individual has to ask similar questions of the Bible as well. Uh, What is this book? Uh, Where did it come from? What uh, role does it play in my life? How should I relate to it? day in and day out? Uh, Is it the inerrant and infallible Word of God? Perfect in every sense of the word. Uh, Is it God's voice and truth communicated through a human medium? Uh, Or is it just a book of poetry and allegory? Is it simply a, a book of ancient wisdom compiled by people as encouragement in an otherwise secular journey? We live in a culture and in a cultural moment in which people are saying, I am the ultimate authority. Nick, I think we have a slide for this. I am the ultimate authority. I will decide what is right and wrong. I will decide what it means to be human in the universe and how life ought to be lived. Justice Anthony Kennedy said it this way. He said at the heart, he's speaking of of America, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Which sounds exhausting, if I'm honest, and, and a bit illogical if we really critique this mindset, but what this does is as we adopt this mindset, millions of Americans have sort of without critiquing it or without thinking, we've adopted this, but as we operate in this mindset, what it does is that it places us in a position over scripture instead of a position under. Uh, now, that's, that's obvious to some extent in the truly secular culture, which says we reject every form of external authority, we reject every uh, kind of form of, of truth except what I uh, claim and make to be true. Uh, it, nobody can be the judge of me or tell me what to do. So we see that in the culture, but if it's loud in the culture, then we see sort of muffled echoes of that making its way into the church as well. Uh, We can also adopt some of that same mentality. We also have a tendency as American Christians in this cultural moment to sort of set ourselves in authority over Scripture uh, instead of authority under. And from the oldest to the youngest across American Christianity, it's becoming increasingly common to uh, say, at least in our minds, quote, I'll be the judge of that. Is this piece of scripture appropriate or relevant or true? I'll be the judge of that. Do we need to follow this bit over here or to receive this as true and authoritative in our day? I'll be the judge of that. Uh, Let me examine the scripture and decide what's worth following and what's not. Uh, This mentality creeps in that says, I know better. I know better. I know better than ancient people did, and perhaps I know better than God. 
what's appropriate for our time and culture and what's not. And so I'll uh, take the bits that I like and I'll reject the bits that I don't. This is the, the tension that's at work in our hearts, sort of internally as followers of Jesus in this time, place, and culture. Uh, but regardless of where you're at with the internal struggle, maybe some of you, particularly those of us uh, in the younger generation, really wrestle with that mentality because it's saturated, it's in everything, it's on our social media and books and movies and everything that we've been raised with and exposed to. Perhaps, and this is stereotyping a little bit, but if you're of an older generation, you might not wrestle as much with that mentality. But regardless of where you're at with sort of the internal struggle, how do I relate to Scripture? Am I over or under? Regardless of where you're at there, it's even more obvious that there is an external struggle that is going on between our secular culture and the church. And if you look back over the last few decades, what you'll see is that in a pretty short amount of time, the secular culture sort of turned on the church, in a sense. Uh, and if you've been in the church for decades, uh, then you've probably felt that moment, that pivot point, where all of a sudden it became culture against church. And now we face an immense amount of cultural pressure to conform to their vision of the good life and their cultural norms. If you go back and look at history, uh, not just the last few decades, but the last few centuries, uh, faith in America and the Western world, which includes Western Europe and Australia and places like that, uh, faith has ebbed and flowed over the last 400 years. So this uh, sort of myth of a slow, long descent from the Dark Ages to today is actually false if you look at history. That's sort of a made-up construct or telling of history. What we see over the last 400 years is boom and bust cycle. We see times where faith is incredibly high in the Western world and times where it's low. Times of crisis within the church, uh, often followed by times of revival or renewal. But when we look at history from our little vantage point right now, the last high point that we can see is probably around the 1950s. Uh, there, was, there was a form of revival in the 1970s, so we see a, a bump there as well. But if you go back to the 1950s, which were flawed in their own way, uh, it was a time where faith was high, where church attendance was high, and where cultural norms and values were essentially reflective of Christian norms and values. The political left and the political right were still competing. They were still at each other, but they were both coming from more or less a, a Christian-y perspective. They were all uh, more or less operating with this mentality of we all kind of agree what's right and what's wrong and, and kind of what we're after. We just have different ways of getting about it. Uh, there was a lot of what we would call cultural Christianity. And that means it was just sort of in the air. It was uh, in the atmosphere. It's sort of this foundation to the culture, a default assumption. Now, the upside to times of cultural Christianity is that it's a lot easier to follow Jesus. Uh, and the churches are full, which feels really exciting. It's kind of easier to follow Jesus. It's easier to talk about him and speak about him and share him with others uh, because it's just sort of uh, in the atmosphere. But the downside to cultural Christianity is that over time, it often becomes sort of watered down. 
and institutionalized, and then you give it a little more time, and it becomes sort of boring. The gospel uh, loses its, its flair, its power, its edge. We kind of forget what is it that we're supposed to be doing? What are we fighting for? To make matters worse, historically, if any revolution succeeds, the people leading it typically move from uh, the role of a radical revolutionary and, and then they gain power and they shift roles into sort of mundane enforcer. If you imagine the game like King of the Hill and imagine that that's being played out on a cultural level, what it means is that when you're fighting to take the hill, you can sort of be as, as radical and wild as you want to be. But once you take that hill, culturally speaking, you move from offense and undermining who's there to defense and sort of trying to suppress alternative worldviews and maintain your spot at the top. And we see that happening uh, in times of cultural Christianity, but uh, it happens in sort of every movement. If you look at every communist movement, that has ever overtaken a country. If you look at every uh, sort of hippie movement, whatever it is, like wide, wildly different things that they believe, but they tend to follow the same pattern. You go from wild-eyed revolutionary to the enforcer at the top, trying to suppress alternative viewpoints. And that same pattern has played out with what we would call progressive secularism today. Uh, the progressive secular movement has sort of taken the hill of the Western world, and now uh, they need to enforce their worldview on others. So if you go back to the 1960s, you see that that wave, the last wave that we went through in the Western world, or at least in America, began to wane. And from the 1960s onward, for the most part, church attendance has been in a steady decline across the Western world. And that was the start of the pendulum swinging the other way toward what we would call progressive secularism. Uh, today, our culture is dominated not by the left as we would think of it historically and in decades past, but by more of an extreme uh, secular progressive view. And this brand of secularism, because it has won the day and is now on top of the hill, what has nothing left to do but try to defend that turf and try to suppress alternative viewpoints. They've gone from, like every movement does, you go from fighting the man, so to speak, to becoming the man. You go from fighting to overthrow the system to then becoming the new system that needs to enforce its values on others. And so we have to understand that that's the cultural moment that we're living in where sort of uh, progressive secularism has taken that hill and is now seeking to uh, suppress sort of alternative viewpoints. They've become, if, you, if you're immersed in the biblical framework, you could almost think of them as, as the new Pharisees of the day. Let's say, no, 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 this is the code you are to live by and we want to go around and make sure everyone is following this code. So progressive secularism uh, has a vision or version of the good life in which we're free from all external authority and you define everything for yourself. It's like Justice Kennedy was saying. 
Uh, you define the purpose of life and your purpose in it. Uh, you define your sexuality, your gender, your expression, and you know better than anyone else. Don't let anybody else tell you uh, that something is right or wrong, or don't let them try to impose any form of external truth or authority on you. That's the vision, but now that vision needs to be defended from the top down. And so there's a sense in which we're um, almost censored in our speech, not from a legal, political perspective, but from a cultural perspective. They now need to kind of go around and, and censor people in their speech and, and uproot and throw out uh, worldviews that conflict or would threaten to undermine uh, their worldview. Uh, there are core truths that they have about sex and identity and expression that were rejected by the left and the right just a few decades ago, but have now come into a place where they cannot even be questioned in the culture that we live in today. There's a long list uh, of sort of politically correct things that you can say and not say, and it has guidelines and behaviors and ideologies that you must sign off on to sort of be accepted by that culture, and if you don't, then you're a bigot. If you don't, then you are the problem. If you don't, then you are threatening to undermine their version, their vision of the good life, and so that voice, that way of thinking needs to be uh, eliminated. In fact, studies now show that uh, for the younger generations in particular, and it, it shows up the most strongly in, in Gen Z, which is sort of, what would that be, 25 and unders today, uh, it's showing that young people more and more are afraid to even uh, say what they're thinking out loud or have conversations about difficult topics. Like anything that's a hot topic, like we shut down, we cannot talk about that. Because if we do, I might offend someone in the process to step on their toes, culturally speaking, and then all be framed as the bigot. All be framed as the bad guy. All be framed as the one who's sort of reigning on the cultural parade. And, and I don't want to do that. So it's better to just kind of keep my head down and stay silent and not talk about those things at all. And that cultural pressure, which is, um, I think, even more obvious among uh, young people who don't know Jesus, that so they're just like, shut down, sign off on whatever they say uh, is right, and just go along with it. That same sort of uh, top-down pressure, censorship, has come to bear on the church. Essentially, the culture says, you go along with us, you sign off on, on our vision of secular, sort of progressive utopia or else. If you don't come along with us, if you don't sign off on this stuff, uh, then you will be labor, labeled as backwards, ignorant, uh, bigoted, outdated. If you don't agree with us, it will cost you, culturally speaking. And you'll be framed as the bad guy. And so, churches compromise by the dozens and, and the thousands and the tens of thousands. 
And there's all sorts of different cultural pressures uh, on us that we could talk about this morning. Uh, sexuality is just one among many, but in some ways it's the loudest right now in our culture and it's the easiest for us to kind of sense and, and to trace out the contours of this morning. So it's certainly not limited uh, to this, but this is one way, it will serve as a helpful example this morning, uh, this is one possible road to compromise uh, that churches are taking. Uh, first, we're told uh, men and women aren't really different. There's nothing truly unique uh, about being a man or a woman uh, in, in any sense, in your purpose, in your calling, in the way that you're wired. And so the, the culture sort of comes to us and says, hey, do you agree with that or do you disagree? Okay, if you agree, you need to sign here. Like, sign off on this right now. And if you don't sign off on this, uh, just so you know, you're sexist. You're sexist, you're part of the problem, you probably suppress women, you know, whatever it is. Sign off on this right now. And so as, as churches, we say, oh, okay, I, well, I'm certainly not sexist. So yeah, I, I, I will, I'll sign, I'll sign off on that. Okay, great. Uh, now that that's settled, uh, we have something else for you to sign off on. We'll kind of subtly begin moving on to the next. Uh, and one possible next cultural pressure is marriage, right? Marriage is not just for one man and one woman, but for any two people, regardless of gender. And oh, by the way, if you don't sign off on this, it's because you're homophobic. It's because you hate people. And, and that, that's intolerant. That is part of the problem in our culture. Is that what your religion teaches? Is that the influence Jesus has had on your life? Because if so, we'd probably be better off without it. We say, oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll sign off on that too. Not a problem. I get it. But then it keeps going. And we've seen this over the years. Then, then it comes again, another wave. Hey, gender doesn't really matter at all. It's a cultural construct and not an innate reality. You can change yours if you want to. Some people are just born in the wrong body. With the wrong plumbing. Nothing more. So you can go ahead and sign here and sign here and sign here. And oh, if you don't, it's because you hate transgender people. Because you don't understand. It's because you're ignorant and you don't understand that. Is that really the reputation you want? Is that, is that the reputation Jesus would want you to have in this culture? It's, oh, okay, okay, okay. Ah, yeah, I'll sign off on that. And then it keeps going. Hey, sexuality isn't reserved for marriage at all. That's an outdated, ancient thing. So go, experiment, discover yourself, do what you want before marriage, even within marriage, and outside of it. It's all good. And, and on and on it goes. A few years from now, there will be another wave. A few years after that, there will be another wave. It's not going to stop because there is no line. 
There is no natural limit to that way of thinking. Polygamy, open marriage, incest, pedophilia, all of that stuff. And I don't mean to scare you. This isn't a fear-based thing. And, and I can tell you I'm not scared, personally. But all of these other conversations are already being had behind closed doors. There's more to come. That train isn't going to stop. There's no self-limit to it. And notice that what's lurking behind all of this is a spirit of confusion and pleasure-seeking. I would argue that uh, most of this is rooted in the flesh and pleasure-seeking and the, quote, liberated self, as our culture would call it. That's what's behind all of this, but what's, it's presented to us as tolerance, acceptance, empathy, kindness. We feel that pressure, right, as followers of Jesus. Are you intolerant? Are you unkind? Are you unsympathetic? Well, no, I, I, I would never want to be those things. I think we all sort of feel the cultural pressure on these issues. No one wants the mic shoved in their face, right? And say, hey, tell me, what do you, what do you think about this? We can feel sort of uh, backed into a corner. We feel the weight and pressure of those paradigms. But the problem is that in the midst of this cultural pressure, many churches have now stepped onto the train, so to speak, they sign off on the first, but then they can't figure out why I shouldn't sign off on the second and then the third. And, and the train is off and running. Um, and, and many churches, I would say, we're happy to hop on that train because we hate being framed as the bigots of our day. We hate that. And if you've been following Jesus for decades, you know it's actually reversed. Decades ago, oh, you're the uptight kind of moral ones. And then all of a sudden it turned and, and now you're the immoral ones. It's very confusing. It's very disorienting for all of us. And, and so and we hate that. We hate being framed as the bad guys. We hate being framed as the bigots uh, of our day. And so, so we start going back to Scripture and sort of reexamining these key passages and, and we begin sort of placing ourselves subtly over scripture instead of under it and we start saying okay maybe maybe that stuff's not for today or maybe we missed it or maybe it was mistranslated or maybe we we misinterpreted that and so we we kind of uh, retreat back into our uh, reinterpreting stage and we go into our studies and into our meetings and we say there's got to be a way to relieve this tension like, we're, we're going to crack, we're going to break under the, the cultural tension that we're feeling. Surely there's some way to relieve this. Surely we're not the bad guys and, and the bigots of our day. And, and so we retreat into our study and begin to reassess and reexamine and reinterpret everything in Scripture. But as we do that, uh, Satan is right there leaning over our shoulders. Saying what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? 
Did you really say that? You'll notice that even as Satan comes at Jesus, he comes at him quoting the Bible, but twisting it, misinterpreting Scripture. It's a great weapon of his. And then lo and behold, weeks or months later, we uh, emerge from our studies and we emerge from our councils and we say, we've found it. We found the secret key. Turns out that every church in every denomination in every continent has gotten it wrong for the last 2,000 years. But we've found it. And we've talked about this and we've prayed about it and we messed with the Hebrew a little bit and we watched a couple YouTube videos and now, now we get it. Now we are the enlightened ones. Now we know better. It goes back to the garden. It's that same temptation. It's, it's coming out of those places saying, I now hold the knowledge of good and evil. It is mine to decide. I hold it in my hands. Here's our new breakthrough interpretation. To which the culture and half of the church just applauds and cheers because it's relieving that tension that we all feel, that we hate to live in. But that uh, train that you hop on is going to take you to places that you don't want to go. It's not going to stop. There's, no, it's, there's nothing built into that. The logic of it will continue down the path that it's going, and it's not going to stop. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to make a really tough choice as to whether or not we'll hop on that train. Because once you hop on that train, it keeps going and going and going, and then you have a choice to make. And it's a really sad choice. Either you keep signing off and keep signing off and keep justifying and keep reinterpreting and keep subtly placing ourselves above Scripture in order to reinterpret and please the culture, or we hop off that train, and it doesn't matter when you hop off that train, you will offend everyone on the train. You can refuse to get on it, you will offend everyone. You can hop off after a stop or two, you will offend everyone. You can hop off at stop 10 when it's completely over the top. You will offend everyone. You will offend everyone at some point. That's the good news of what I'm trying to tell you this morning. The alternative is that you stay on the train, but you reinterpret and you reinterpret and you water down and you kind of have to pack Jesus and the scriptures away. And the further you go, the more watered down it gets until one day you wake up and you realize you're just a social justice club. There's no more Jesus. There's no more gospel. There's no more Bible. Because guess what? Jesus is offensive. He's offensive. What the scriptures have to say to broken, fallen humanity is not easy to hear. There's a reason everybody wanted to kill him. Well, for loving people and the miracles and the... No, he was offensive. 
he threatens in his day both visions of the good life. The right and the left. The Romans and the Jews. The military occupants and the religious zealots. Those who worshipped everything and those who worshipped the one true God the wrong way. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, hey, heads up, y'all. Not exactly like that. He said, hey, gather around everybody. Guess what? The world hates me. It's not ambiguous. It's not on the fence. It hates me. And because you follow me, it's going to hate you too. Are we good here? And they say, yeah, Jesus, we're good here. We're all good. We, we get it. We understand what you're calling us to. We have counted the cost. It was not fun then. It is not fun now. But we, we're counting the cost, and we get it. We're in. Saying we, we are under your authority, not over. We are under the authority of Scripture, not over. We'll count the cost. We'll follow you. And there's a cost to both sides, by the way. As I'm speaking, you probably sense the cost of what it means to follow Jesus and our time, place, and culture, but there's a cost to the other side. Right now, we have churches uh, compromising by the thousands across the Western world, Western Europe, America, Australia, and it's to avoid that cultural condemnation, to extend our cultural favor in a sense. We say we felt it in the 50s and the 60s and to some extent the 70s, and we want that cultural favor. We don't want to be framed as the bigots, as the bad guys, as the outcasts. But there's a real cost to that too. And I personally think the churches that are compromising will see a boost in numbers for a generation or maybe two before they fade into nothing. Because they're trading cultural favor for truth. And as soon as you put yourself over the Word of God, you lose the power of the Gospel. And you're forced to increasingly compromise and peddle and apologize and sanitize the gospel until one day you wake up and there's nothing left in it. It's been emptied of its meaning. It's been emptied of its truth. It's been emptied of its power. We believe that this is, is the inspired word of God. That, that we are in authority under. That it knows the truth more than we know the truth. We believe that it is God-breathed and profitable. That it is useful for teaching and correcting and encouraging and rebuking. Are we willing to let it rebuke us? Are we willing to let it correct us? 
Are we willing to let it pierce our hearts to separate bone from marrow, to cut into the deepest places of who we are and bring us to life in Jesus? Are we willing to let it do the surgery that it's intended to do within the broken, lost, confused human heart? Because if we're not, if we say, nope, too high a cost, too uncomfortable, I, I, I don't want that, then our church, I will say our churches across the Western world will lose their power. And we will lose our ability to change the culture itself. This was meant to change the culture, not the other way around. And every renewal and every revival in human history was ushered in by people who had a high view of this book. He said, we believe this is the inspired word, that it's God-breathed and profitable, that we are under its authority, being shaped by it. Those are the people who have transformed human history. Who say, this is the word of God, this is the lens through which I choose to view the world. 2% of my generation has a biblical worldview. I would guess that it's maybe less with Gen Z. Are we willing to, to stand on this even when it's difficult? Every revival and every renewal that has come in human history has not just been brought by people who stood on this as the Word of God, but it has had as its effect a culturally wide, fresh hunger for the Word of God. Every renewal and revival has broken out in a time when this was gone. This was out of, of the national consciousness. When this was just culturally just buried and, ir and irrelevant. And as revival and renewal bursts out, all of a sudden people who had no knowledge of God and no interest in God have a fresh hunger for the Word of God. And say, no, we believe that there is power in this. That this is true. You can read scripture through that lens. Go and look at the Old Testament as the Israelites. They do the same thing Western culture is doing. It's boom and bust. It's crisis and revival. But notice what happens in the revivals in the Old Testament. Usually what happens is somebody finds a dusty old scroll in a corner and says, what is this? And they dust it off, and they're cut to the heart. And after them, one by one, the culture is cut to the heart. We see this in Ezra and the prophets of the Old Testament. It, it, revival so often was born out of a rediscovery of the Word of God. And it affected an entire people group who are then awakened and hungry for the Word. No, we can't get enough of this. We have been starved for truth as we've been lost in our relativism. We're ready for this again. If you look at the early church as you move into the New Testament and the book of Acts, the early church, which is the church that we see, we look at that and we say it's going to look a little different in every time, place, and culture, but this is God's plan for the church. 
that it would be full of, of fire and it would spread across a broken world. Whatever's happening in the book of Acts, that's what needs to happen again. And when you read the book of Acts, uh, we get glimpses of what the church was like. And I just want you to pay attention to some of the language here that's used. This is a totally Holy Spirit-filled movement. People are being raised from the dead. They're being healed. They're speaking in tongues. They're prophesying. All of that stuff is operating. But I want you to notice how they describe this movement. Listen to this. I think we have a slide. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2, and the word of God increased. The word of God grew and multiplied. The word of the Lord spread. And the word of the Lord prevailed mightily. Interesting. And it's something we look at and say, whoa, that's just a dynamic, spirit-filled movement. It's completely based on the Word of God. See how they have such a high view of the Word of God that they can't even distinguish between the movement and the Word. What's happening to the Word is what's happening to their movement. And vice versa. This is the story of the rest of church history up to this day. It tells a similar story. Terry Virgo says it this way. We'll end with this. He says, whenever the Bible has been readily available, he's talking about church history from the resurrection to today. Whenever the Bible has been readily available, understood and obeyed, the church has prospered. When it has been lost, buried, obscured by tradition, the church has languished. We live in a moment of cultural pressure and cultural compromise where the church is tempted to twist, obscure, bury Scripture for the sake of peace with the culture and the secular elites of our day. I cannot tell you how many people we have lost over the last five years here in this community because of our unwillingness to compromise what we see as the most faithful interpretation of Scripture. And, I, and it's hard to convey how much pain is involved in that as a leader of the church. To be the one in all those meetings and all those meetings and all those conversations and all those prayers. It's really difficult. Is it painful as a leader in the church? Absolutely. Will it cost us something to relate to the Word of God in this way? Absolutely. It already has. It's come with a tremendous cost. But we want more than cultural favor. We want renewal. We want revival. We, we want the kingdom of God to come in power in this place. And the only way that is possible is if we stand on the Word of God, if we allow it to shape us rather than the other way around.
if we are an authority under, not authority over. If this is the lens through which we see the world and we count the cost, then we actually have a chance at changing the culture instead of the culture changing us. We, we have an opportunity to survive and even thrive in the midst of the secular age. Go look at Europe. They're decades ahead of us. And you can see the, the, the churches that said, yes, we'll sign off on your worldview, and they're gone. They're empty. Their buildings have been turned into libraries and pubs and apartment buildings. They're gone. And they were completely willing to yield to the culture. We, we, we have a better dream for our city. We have a better dream for our country. We have a better dream for the Western world. But, but we cannot even work toward that dream if we're not standing on this as the Word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you now on behalf of our generations that are represented in this room, on behalf of our city, on behalf of our nation, on, on behalf of Western culture, if, it, if we could do that. And, and we want to be those in the weeks and months and years and decades ahead who stand as Moses did in a place of intercession and say, Lord, we don't even have to convince you that this culture is not too far gone. You already know that, that this can be rescued, that you can move in power in this place, that every time the church has hit a crisis moment and responded not through cultural compromise, but through standing on the word of God and getting on our knees and saying, Lord, we believe this to be true. And if it's true, then come in power and change the world that we live in. And we've seen time and time again, we could name movement after movement after name after nation that has been shaped by people who were willing to do that. Jesus, would you come now and would you assess us, Lord? Would you walk among your lampstands like you do in the book of Revelation and say, I know this church, I know you, I know you, I know what you're up against. I know the cultural pressure that you're under. I know how it feels, but don't let your love grow cold. Don't stop loving me and loving my word and standing on what's true because there will come a day when the culture comes to the end of itself. When that unstoppable train is going off a cliff and everyone's pulling the eject button and they're saying, we don't know what's gone wrong. But we're ready to come back to something that's true. Lord, may we be there on our knees praying your presence and your promises 
over our city and our culture and seeing many, many people come in waves back to you. 